Hey, everybody. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. A couple of weeks ago, uh, as I'm sure some of you listeners heard, I had a guest uh, named Ben Harbert on the show. He's a music scholar and filmmaker, and we were discussing the documentary that he made about Louisiana prison musicians called Follow Me Down. It was filmed in three prisons, including the legendary Angola Penitentiary in Louisiana. And one of the people who helped Ben with his research on Angola was Marianne Fisher Giorlando. She's a criminologist who has spent a good part of her life studying and working in houses of correction. She taught for many years in the criminal justice department at Grambling State University in Louisiana. And during that time, she started volunteering in the best-known prison thereabouts, Louisiana State Penitentiary, known to the world as Angola. It is the largest prison in the U.S. and for a time, one of the most notorious. But for Marianne, uh, it has become something like almost a second home. I don't know, that might be putting it too strongly, but she has a very positive relationship to this famous prison where she continues to volunteer even after retiring from Grambling in 2012. She works with the staff of The Angolite, which is the award-winning inmate-run news magazine, and she also works in the prison museum and has become an authority on the whole history of Angola, which dates back to before the Civil War. So uh, after meeting Marianne through Ben Harbert, uh, I got to hear her own story about her life in and out of prison, and I thought it deserved its own hour of radio. That is what we're going to hear today. Marianne, how did you get started in criminology? Got divorced with a master's in sociology and needed a job that summer uh, because I didn't get a teaching assistantship at at Ohio State where I was doing my graduate work. And a friend said, uh, go down the prison. They always need somebody to teach in the prison programs. That was during the time prisoners had Pell Grants. And uh, many universities were teaching in prison. So this was southern Ohio. Uh, I went down to the local prison there and uh, walked in that door. Those students were better students than the students I was teaching at the Ohio State. (laughs) And I was instantly intrigued with what that was, huh? And what was going on in prison. And um, I still am. Um, you know, I've talked to a number of people who've taught in prisons, and I think every single one of them says what you just said, that uh, they're some of or maybe the best students they've ever had. Right, right. That, that class still stands out in my mind. I, it was social theory. Some of them had read more Marx in the original than I had, and I had been emphasizing social theory. So for people who think that prison is full of people with huge behavior problems and maybe largely um, uninterested in intellectual subjects, um, tell us what you found. Oh, not true at all, Um, particularly in that first class. They absolutely challenged me. Uh, and, and continue to do so to this day in, in my interactions with them. I, I generally see a hunger on their part to learn, to find out about things. Uh, that's, I think, part of the thing that keeps me going back, maybe because I'm a teacher, huh? And uh, you love to be around people who want to know and investigate the world as you do, huh? Why do you think there's this hunger? Are they trying to catch up to things that they missed out on earlier in life? Uh, Maybe being cut off from the world, too. 
uh, although they're not as cut off, certainly, as they used to be because they have television and things, but um, that that one I can't answer, Robert. You uh-huh. know, that it'll come to me after we hang up the phone, I'm sure. But. <laughs> well, at any rate, you had this experience, this revelation uh, in that first prison you worked in in Ohio. Right. And you, at some point, with your sociology degree, turned it into a criminology uh, specialty, yes? Well, even more specific than criminology, it became a study of prisons, because I turned into the person in the department that taught all the courses about prisons and corrections, and even developed a special topic ones on Louisiana corrections. Um, what led you to Louisiana? The job. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I hadn't completed the degree. I was all but dissertation and needed a job. And uh, I put my Vita out there at a national meeting, and uh, Grambling State University's chair, Ray Cadia, called me. And I knew nothing about Grambling. I, I didn't know it was a historically black college. I had already had a line on the map. I was not going to go live in the Deep South. I'm a Yankee from New Jersey originally. Uh, and But I figured, okay, this is a quiet place. I can go there and finish writing my dissertation. Uh, you know, it will take me a couple of years, and then I'll come back up north. And just never did. Uh, I was a returning student. I was much older. I was almost 50 when I got the Ph.D., so, Marianne, i got to ask, um, yeah. you say you got your Ph.D. at the age of 50, so you've become a full-time scholar, academic, uh, in midlife, yeah. uh, and you've chosen a career at that point that's going to take you back and forth between sort of the university and, and classrooms there uh, and, and prisons, including some fairly notorious ones like Angola in Louisiana, right. uh, where you go into classrooms and other sorts of facilities. A very unusual life. Um, What made you choose that? Well, it evolved, and I was in a criminal justice program. And in the criminal justice program, you have a combination of academics and practitioners, you see. And there's some indication that students may not see you as giving valid ideas or facts if you haven't worked in the system. Angola is a a very famous prison, very old prison, and for a long time a extremely tough, right. na- nationally notorious prison where simply, uh, let's say, telling someone who's just been convicted of a crime that they're going to Angola is enough to set their, their knees shaken, you know? Right. Uh, people must ask you all the time, uh, were you scared when you started in this work, and are you I, ever scared when you're doing it? Never. There's no reason to because the, the guys have my back. Uh-huh. It would do more damage to them if something happened to me. You know, they they would lose privileges. So you weren't scared, yeah. uh, but was it culture shock? Was it, you know, initially a different world than one you had to adapt to? Well, in the classroom, no. A classroom had students and a teacher, and that's what it was, except that they happened to be better behaving and more interested (laughs) students, you know? Have you been doing most or all of your work in in all-male prisons? Yes. I did teach one course in a women's prison in Ohio, but then when I got to Louisiana, my connections developed with Angola. I did take the students on a couple of tours to the women's prison, 
but I still think that women's prisons hold their prisoners much more tightly than they do in men's prisons. They, uh, they seem to be overprotective and patronizing of them, and I, I can't tolerate it, huh? Oh. To, to watch that. I mean, all the books from 20, 30 years ago talk about them treating them as children, and they refer to them as girls. You know, it, it, I guess it's closer because I'm a woman, and, I, and maybe it's simply, hey, I could be here, and I don't want to be reminded of that. Hmm. I'm not sure, uh, hmm. but I know it's, uh, it's, it's always disturbing to me. In, in these years of studying criminology, uh, what kinds of questions have you sought to answer? I'm curious about how certain people end up in prison as opposed to others, how the law is implemented against whom and under, against whom and under what conditions. What have you found? As the leading researchers have, that it's discriminatory and it's, it's the poor and the disenfranchised that are more likely to wind up behind prison bars. I mean, it's pretty obvious now to us, huh? That's more my question. My objective has never been an issue of uh, more control in a prison, huh? I've, I've always veered away from that. And in fact, I gave up doing contemporary statistical research on prisons because I initially thought that it would be used to make prisons more coercive than they are. Now, I've done a little reading on Angola. Uh, okay. I'm pretty ignorant, but I've okay. heard that historically, uh, in the bad old days, um, not only was it likened, in, in some cases, to a slave plantation, which it, it was before it became a prison, but well into the 20th century, uh, incredibly harsh conditions, forced labor, and things like that, but also have read that there was a period when the guards were very corrupt, or some of them, uh, and uh, in exchange for uh, favors, etc., you know, pr- there was a prison hierarchy that the guards sort of conspired in and allowed certain, you know, really nasty things to go on among the prisoners. Uh, is that true? And, and if so, did it change? And, and was that all before your time there? Oh, yeah. Um, and, and what you might be referring to is when the guards were convict guards. They didn't go to a full free world paid guard force until well into the 1960s. It may have been late 60s, early 70s when the Supreme Court inter- intervened in prison businesses across the United States. Huh? Uh-huh. So when you read uh, the worst of times uh, were when the guards were convicts themselves. Mm-hmm. But that was well before you came along. Oh, yeah. I didn't get down there until 1992. Uh-huh. And by that time, it was a very different place than it had been in right. previous decades. Right. Absolutely. Now, a really interesting twist in your story is that you were teaching at Grambling State University, right. which, by the way, is a historically black college, a very famous one right. uh, in Louisiana. And you were teaching in the criminology department. Right. And well, criminal ju- it's a criminal justice department. Oh, excuse right. me. Excuse me. And one of your students was the man who became the warden of Angola, Burl Kane. Is that right? He was warden when I taught him. 
Oh, I see. I see. Okay, so you didn't teach him on on route to becoming the warden. No, no. But no. but was your teaching him uh, your you know first real good inside connection at Angola, or were you already working there? I was already there, and and I the the other thing that I do down there that we have a museum, and I've been on the museum board since it opened in 1998. Aha. Uh-huh. And what's in the museum? Oh, everything. <laughs> everything from the contraband that they collect uh, to historical presentations of the first lease and copies of documents of, of uh, when the state took over the prisoners from the Lisi in, in 1900, exhibits of, the, of uh, a couple of famous escapes, really nice one of the rodeo. Uh, there's one of a famous nurse, uh, Mary Margaret Doherty, from the 1950s when they had uh, what was called the heel-stringing incident. The prisoners cut their Achilles heel in protest to going back out into the work fields. And uh, she sewed back up their heels because she was the only medical personnel on Angola at the time. We have rotating exhibits in one of the rooms also. We just took down the history of the women in corrections, which I helped curate. And then we have another one that started at Angola that's traveling the state called uh, Farming on the Farm Agricultural Operations at the Louisiana State Penitentiary. What uh, are your favorite objects or maybe the most curious objects you've seen in the collection? You know what? They don't attract me because <laughs> I, I want... <laughs> and, and I, of course, I have a bias towards the women's stuff because I've been studying it all this while. Although I love the, uh, the farming on the farm one. Uh, and I, I'm always gravitating to the history of the things, huh? And the farming on the farm, there was a great picture in the newspaper when they got their first tractor at Angola, uh, and everybody was excited about it because it was going to help with the work, right? Well, now uh, now they're cutting down on using the tractors, and because they have enough men, they're going back to uh, using mules to pull the hoe. Huh? Really? With a buggy, Yeah. You know, at first I made some cracks about it, and I'm going, oh, dear God, you know. And um, one of the wardens said to me, hey, Marianne, they have multiple benefits. Uh, the men who are using those mules are taking care of the mules. They get to bond with the animals. And that's a really important thing for the men, huh? Mm-hmm. And um, Warden Kane would say they're saving on gas. <laughs> huh? Yeah. You know, sometimes it looks different than it is. You, you, you follow what I'm saying? Huh? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to something you said a moment ago because I, I think it might yeah it, it, it might confuse somebody. You said you're most interested in the women's stuff, but Angola's all male, no? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm interested historically in the women's stuff. Oh, the, but the women were at Angola until 1961. Oh, okay, okay. So they moved to, them to a prison of their own. Yeah. You know, we haven't really given people a picture of Angola and its history. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you what I know, which isn't that much, and then you can take over, okay? okay. So I know that it was a slave plantation long ago. It was converted right. into what ultimately became Louisiana State Penitentiary, that it's huge, that it's something like 18,000 acres, uh, right. a lot of farmland, and 
Right. Uh, to this day, uh, the prisoners actually worked that land. Right. Um, and that it is, uh, by some accounts, the largest prison in America with a population yes. of maybe 5,000. And that it was considered incredibly harsh and that it might have been sort of like those infamous southern prison scenes we'd see in movies. Right. Uh, you know, like I was a fugitive from a chain gang and things yes. like that up yes. until, uh, you know, fairly recent decades. Right. So you, you tell me more. Fill in those gaps for us. Oh, you want more of the history now? Yeah, yeah, and and why Angola is so famous, why it's so unusual, and among American prisons, there's Sing Sing, there's Alcatraz, and Angola. <laughs> well, it's called a plantation model of imprisonment, okay, even to this day because it's based on agriculture. Um, as I look at the history from 1900, well, right after the Civil War, it was really bad, too, because uh, the state turned over the prisoners to a, a leasee. They used the phrase in the South that one dies, get another, that they could easily lease another prisoner and they could work them to death. But all the Southern prisons did that. Angola was not unique at all. Huh? Uh, from Florida to Texas and one of the Carolinas, I believe, they leased prisoners right after the Civil War. Uh, because what they did was it became the institution of social control for the slaves, for the newly freed slaves. During slavery, they had slavery to control them. And after the Civil War, uh, there was some belief that they didn't know how to be free, and uh, they wound up incarcerating them to uh, unbelievable proportions. So we've got the whole lease system through Reconstruction and post-Reconstruction up, to the turn of the century across the South. Marianne, I think you should explain just a little bit more what you mean by lease system. Uh, the state turned over the prisoners uh, to somebody who would work them. So that then the state didn't have to house them any place, you see. And in Louisiana, those prisoners were controlled by a leasee named S.L. James, and he managed the prisoners, and he managed some of them were still left in that old uh, Walt Penitentiary downtown in Baton Rouge, but they generally used that place as a receiving center. And then they were distributed to different places throughout Louisiana. Some former plantations, they were then subleased huh, to former plantation owners to work the plantations. They were also subcontracted back to the state to work on the levees and also subcontracted back to the state where they worked on rebuilding the roads after the Civil War. These leasees, these people who controlled the prisoners for their own purposes, for their own labor, uh, right. they had complete control over them. They, I imagine yes. they, they were authorized to shoot them and, right. you know, and, and keep them essentially in bondage, yes? Absolutely. How Absolutely. long did that go on? Uh, when was that? I assume that was outlawed at some point. When did? How long did it go on? Oh, let's see. The first lease may have been 1870, and then the state took back control of the prisoners in 1901. But you have to realize the state took control because they saw how much money the leasee was making. And so it was always the almighty dollar that was driving people, huh? Huh. And uh, they'd start making a little bit of money, and then something would happen, either the boll weevil or the floods. They had a series of floods 
um, on and off through the years that prevented them from making the kind of money that uh, the lease had made previously. Huh? Mm. And so um, one of the money-saving devices after the series of floods was to um, institute the convict guard system. And that's when some of the most uh, awful things happened. They were in big old barns, and they would lock them in at night. And uh, there were terrible stories of them beating each other up and raping each other. And if somebody got really hurt, the prisoners would bring them to the door and lay them on the ground outside the, uh, the barn and the the guards would come and, and get them and, and take them to where they could receive medical care. Mm. It, it, it would go in cycles, huh? Didn't seem to be any real improvement until the Supreme Court intervened in, in the early 1970s. And uh, so major changes were made. But ironically enough, as we made prisons more humane in the day-to-day living conditions, we also increased or made our laws and sentencing policies more severe to where we now incarcerate more men and women uh, than any other country in the Western world. And Louisiana has the highest incarceration rate of all the states in the United States, well beyond any of them. And so, therefore, Louisiana has the highest incarceration rate in the Western world, huh? I didn't realize that. Yeah. So, so Marianne, what has changed uh, about Angola in recent decades? With some of that sentencing, as those laws changed in the 70s and the 80s, and uh, Louisiana started giving out life without parole to first offenders. We have a lot of first offenders that have life without parole, and what happened is it brought in a different caliber of prisoner. First offenders that didn't necessarily have the criminal mindset of what we see in the old-time prisons. Hmm. And, and also, more programs have been brought in, particularly Warden Kane has brought in unbelievable programs to Angola. He has also brought in all sorts of organizations, maybe religious organizations, uh, but that door is wide open. You know, those, those outside groups make them, make the guys maybe feel worthy. And, and what I've noticed, I, I worked the rodeo this time with, with the Angolite again, and um, what I noticed was in, in interacting with all the free world people you see at the rodeo, and there are thousands of people that come to that rodeo, um, the men act differently. They act like almost like they're free. They act normal, huh? It's a normalizing effect on them. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about the history of exploiting prison labor, and yeah. of course, way back when, you were forced to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, if maybe if you refused or didn't work hard enough, you might be beaten or otherwise punished. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume that's all changed, although there's still a lot of work going on in Angola, both out in the fields and in, uh, you know, prison factories. Is that all voluntary, or, or are prisoners still essentially required to work? Oh, yeah, you have to work. I mean, you're, you're not going to lay back in a cell. The only way you're going to lay back in a cell is if you're in a punishment cell. Uh-huh, uh-huh. 
or in a protective custody cell or on death row. And, and let me say something, you know, as a northerner, um, I see the agricultural work as it could look exploitive, mm-hmm. and, and, and it may be, but um, I have really good southern friends now who saw that exhibit in Farming on the Farm who come from farm families, and this is really hard for the city girl to understand, but there are people that would prefer to be outside working than inside. And and so there is the possibility, you know, now, boy, I can't, I'm having trouble even saying this out loud, that I guess there there are people that would enjoy that more than being inside. And I, I hate to use the word enjoy. Uh, well, it's, but, a, it's an outlet, you know. I mean, being in a prison cell or a prison block of some kind right. uh, is no picnic. Right, right. And, and, and see, that's difficult for me because, first of all, I'm up north and I'm a city girl, huh? Uh-huh. And um, the, the heat still bothers me after all these years. So I, I can't imagine working out in the field in the summertime, you know. But, but there's also some of the uh, correctional officers I know that they would prefer to be outside on the horse in the field, too. They don't want to work inside. It's, 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 a, it's very interesting uh in my experience, which is far more limited than yours, to see how much the personality of a prison is uh, a result of of a particular warden. Uh, You'd think that states might have a completely um, inflexible policy that makes all prison, you know, every prison like the other. But wardens have a lot of say in the matter, at least in in, in the situations I've observed, and it sounds like in, in Louisiana as well. That was unique to Louisiana, but apparently not so. And and I do remember from Ohio that that the prisons were different. That first one I went into was clean as could be. You could eat off the floor, and um, the men were uh, very proud of the fact that their their place was clean, because I got a spot on my dress, and I thought, oh, I must have rubbed up against the table, and they immediately reacted and said, oh no, it didn't happen in here. And I went, oh, uh, that's interesting, huh? That they had uh, taken ownership for the cleanliness of the place and were proud of it. And that came down from the warden, you think? Yeah, it did. My advisor at the time said, yeah, that warden, I I didn't know that warden well at all. I didn't get to know that warden as I've uh, come to know wardens in Louisiana. But he was retired military, and apparently that was, why the place was exceptionally clean, and it was cleaner than others that I visited, huh? So that that movie representation uh, that we see of the warden, you know, the classic movie warden, this guy who really is sort of like, you know, the king in his castle, the the person who really calls the shots, uh, not completely wrong. You know, I don't think of it that way, but I guess so, except that, you know, not everything always gets to the warden. Right. Well, you know, that's true of some kings, too. They don't know everything that's going on in the castle. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, 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 but he is accessible, and, and yeah, what he says goes. That's, yeah, and, and, I, and, and a place as large as that, and then there's another prison I frequent that's only an hour away from my own house, and that's true there, too. Uh, 
you have consulted, I, I've, I've heard, on some movies. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> uh, the Green Mile? Is that oh, true? that was just a little bit in terms of um, they, they were insistent on asking uh, where Death Row was at Angola, and I forget the years that the Green Mile, was it the thir- 30s or 40s? It must have been the 30s, 40s, maybe early 50s. They wanted to know where Death Row was, and Angola didn't have Death Row then. Executions took place in the parishes or county, uh, where the person was convicted. They took them back to that place to kill them. They stayed there. They, oh, stayed, they stayed where there. they were convicted. Oh, I see. Okay. And, and, and even after they had the electric chair, they put the electric chair and the generator on a flatbed truck and drove it to the parish. I see. It traveled around. It had a nickname, yeah. didn't it? I think they call it Gertie, but I'm not sure that that's true. I've been digging at that on and off. Uh, because they came up with the same name as some other states' nickname for it. Uh-huh. So I'm not, I'm not convinced. <laughs> um, what is the most accurate movie depiction you've seen? I mean, I'm talking fiction movies, the kind that we'd see on the big screen. Uh, the most accurate one that you think reflects the reality of prison life. You know what? Um... I like Shawshank Redemption, but it's not true. It's fiction. Uh-huh. But it, but it, it, it is it... the best depiction of the big house era of the prison in a northern prison. Mm-hmm. Of the prison subculture, the way it operates, the, the corruption, uh, the way the prisoners manipulate one another. Huh? Hmm. Um, that one seems to be the most accurate and consistent with the scholarly literature that's written about that era. And the first time I saw it, I didn't realize it was fiction. Really? Right. Huh. The other one that I like is uh, Brubaker. Now, an awful lot of people prefer Cool Hand Luke for the South. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but I have, for some reason or another, I've developed uh, a real like for Brubaker. And I think part of it is, and, and Arkansas was the first state that the Supreme Court intervened in, and that was a story about Arkansas. And, and in fact, if you read that warden, um, Tom Merton, if you read his book, the conditions in the Arkansas prison system were, in fact, worse than what was depicted in the film. But the uh, typical representation of, say, a contemporary prison that we see on, you know, TV shows and uh, in movies, and I mean fictional ones, uh, are they way off the mark? Are they grossly I sensationalized? Think so. I think I well, let me let me get back. In my experiences of prisons, they are now, but I have been in a room full of ex-convicts who are university professors. It's a group called Convict Criminology. And uh, there have been great discussions, shall we say, in that room among the men who have been in different prisons in different states. In California, it's different. There are some prisons where it's really, really bad, where there are gangs, huh? and, and where there is um, 
the manipulation of prisoners by other prisoners in, in the brutality and those sorts of things. But you know what? Louisiana doesn't have gangs. Can you believe that? Why is that? I still don't know. You know, the first time a warden told me that, I go, you're putting me on. Right. We don't have gangs. Well, apparently, they don't organize well enough in Louisiana. <laughs> Outside. I don't know why. <laughs> and, and, and you'll get this. I'll go, yeah, but there were those gangs over there in Shreveport, you know. Yeah, but they're not the real ones. It's not an area of criminology that I know well, but, but every single warden in Louisiana will tell you there just aren't the gangs. And if you ask the guys, they'll just look and you go, yeah, no, we don't have any. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we were talking a moment ago about the exploitation of uh, prison labor in Louisiana. And, of course, there were times in the past when uh, prisoners were worked you know, to death or work nearly to death and were punished severely if they didn't work and, uh, you know, that that it was very similar to slavery. In fact, uh, that incident you mentioned, which took place when? Uh, when a group of prisoners in protest of those conditions actually cut their own Achilles tendons to, uh, to, to sort of uh, disable themselves. Yes, that was in the 1950s, early 1950s. But that's how that was not unique to Louisiana. The prisoners in Texas did it too. Uh, my friend Robert Perkinson has written a wonderful book about the history of prisons in uh, Texas called Texas Tough, and uh, that's where I became aware of the fact that there were incidences across the prisons in the South. Uh, but what's unique to them is that. Um, only the white prisoners protested that way. The black prisoners didn't. And Robert's analysis of that is he believes that the black prisoners just didn't think people would pay attention to them. Now, now some people listening, Marianne, might think we've been um, avoiding or, or ignoring one of the biggest subjects of all, but uh, I, I meant to get to this all along, which is race. Uh, of course, yeah. Angola was, as I said before, a slave plantation. And in fact, um, I neglected to mention that it got its nickname, Angola. Uh, its official name is Louisiana State Penitentiary, right? Right. But it got its nickname because a lot of those slaves had come from the Angola region of Africa. We're not sure. Let me oh, okay. believe that is so. Okay. We haven't documented that yet. You know, and, and it would take a, a, a historian of slavery that would absolutely be able to document that. Some historians tell me it wasn't possible because uh, the Portuguese imported the Angola slaves, and that trade stopped long before uh, the original Angola, the small parcel of Angola plantation was created and named. And, and I have seen the purchase records where initially that property was called Angola, Angora, A-N-G-O-R-A. Uh-huh. And then it's Angola. And so I do know that people were sloppy about spelling in looking at all those pre-Civil War court records. Uh, so it could have been that just the, the spelling changed in error. Huh? Uh, the other thing is, um, Oh, Lord, now I'm forgetting her name, but Franklin was a slave owner, and his wife may have been an international traveler, and she may have enforced the Angola name in, in a kind of 
strange romanticism. Uh huh. Well, I'm glad you're on the case. And when you find out whether indeed the uh, right. traveling electric chair was nicknamed Gertie and why right. why Angola is called Angola, why right. a Louisiana prison is seems to be named after a country in Africa, you let us know, okay? Okay. Okay. <laughs> but in any case. Uh, you know, it has this history uh, that's deeply intertwined with the history of uh, slavery and racism. And to this day, uh, and it's not unusual for an American prison, uh, the, the great majority of inmates are black. That's, is that right? Yes, that's correct. What, what that's percent? Correct. They're, they're, it's disproportionately black. Um, way out of proportion to the population uh, outside. Absolutely. Uh, and and Louisiana, and you know what, I'm not sure about the other southern prisons right now, but Louisiana's incarcerated population is still 75% black, and Louisiana's free world population is only in around 30%, mm-hmm. 33, 35% black. Mm-hmm. So uh, more than double the likelihood, huh? Well, is there anything to say about that that, hasn't been said, uh, you know, I mean, the obvious conclusion, the one that you hinted at earlier when you said prisons, by and large, house the, the poor and the disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like the country music, you know, country music is always about the poor folks, black and white, right? Or the the prison music is. No, and, and I'd have to pick up some of the recent scholars, one particularly Michelle Alexander, who's claiming that uh, the maintenance of the black disproportionality in in uh, our current prisons comes out of the drug laws. Her book is called The New Jim Crow, and she makes the argument that the drug laws were a backlash to the civil rights movement and were a concerted effort, almost a conspiracy, to um, keep black folks incarcerated. To the levels that they always had been, and and these are drug laws that uh, right there in the law is embedded some kind of discrimination. Like oh the, the, yeah, the the difference between the powder cocaine and the crack cocaine. I mean the federal the federal system is changing it and has changed it recently, and they've been releasing some of these folks, huh? But the um, drug laws were set up so that crack cocaine that's going to be most usually used by poor folks because it's a lot less expensive and and more available, had more severe sentencing. And and so the poor and mostly black folks who were using the crack cocaine would be more likely to get the more severe sentences. Now, another explanation for that, we should say, although there are those who, who see a racial motivation the other explanation is that, you know, the crack wars resulted in tons of violence and people had a knee-jerk reaction that the, yeah. dr- the drug yeah. itself was, yeah. was causing more harm than, than powdered cocaine. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. And, that, and that could be the case, too. And, in fact, apparently, and now I can't remember the scholar, Dorian, I forget his name, uh, he, he is starting to research this issue and what he found was that it was black legislators that took it at the national level saying, uh, we have these drugs on the streets that are destroying our communities. What can we do about it? Now, his argument is that the black legislators should have stopped it when it went overboard. Uh, but they didn't. But it was black legislators that brought the, the problem to the attention 
to pass some laws to help protect the communities, and I, I can see that. So, you know, and then others are just saying it's a continuation of slavery uh, with, without a lot of analysis that, 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 that book's called Slavery by Another Name, yeah. And, in fact, there's been a documentary on PBS on that one. Uh, but Michelle Alexander, some of the ex-prisoners who are black who have read, that I know who have read Michelle Alexander's book, which is called The New Jim Crow, are saying that she's got it right on the, she hit it right. Hmm. She, she's got the analysis down. Um, given this fact that Angola, like the majority, I would say, of American prisons, is disproportionately people of color, in this case African-American, to go into the prison is to actually enter uh, a world that, among other things, has a lot of African-American culture in it, right? Yes. I mean, if, yes. if one group has influenced Angola culture, I would think it would be, you know, black Americans more than any others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so your study of, or your work in Angola has meant you, a white woman, have spent a lot of time in a world in some ways defined by African-Americans. How, how has that been for you? But I spent 27 years at Grambling, too. That's right, Grambling State University, uh, historically right. black college. And I was a white woman among black folks. Yes. And, and that's what I saw at Grambling, that so many of our kids had relatives in prison. huh? And sometimes they would go down there and, and see their relatives. I, I always wanted to do research, particularly of the, my students who had parents in prison. Huh? Uh, but I wanted them to initiate it, and I would keep recommending it, and nobody really picked it up. But I, I thought we had a really good potential project there, huh? Well, um, you know, this this wouldn't even be worth remarking on if we were a completely historically integrated country, but we aren't. Right. Uh, we're a country right. where, to this day, you know, most white people hang out with white people, and, uh, you know, many, many black people hang out mostly with black people. Right. Whereas you're a white woman who spent your life, a good part of your life, uh, teaching at a majority black university, uh, right. working in majority black prisons. So you're an exception. So I just wanted to ask how that's been for you, whether that was uh, initially an adjustment for you, whether it just was a non-issue. Uh, yeah, I mean, initially it was, and then I got comfortable and the students always made me comfortable. Uh, but I would always qualify things like, I can't presume to say this because I'm not black. Now, I've never, you know, been in the position where I'm teaching large groups of black folks down at Angola. But, but at Grambling, the students would say, oh, Doc, but, you know, after a while we kind of adopt you, <laughs> and you're not really white anymore. <laughs> So I, I had this kind of privileged position because I was accepted at Grambling. Hmm. Um, my impression of Angola, again, from a, from a great distance, is that due to its size, mm -hmm. uh, due to its isolation, uh, due to historically being you know, sort of cut off from the world in many ways, uh, that it has become its own its own world or its own sort of city state. Uh, there are the vast fields. There are all these institutions within prison. There's the rodeo you mentioned where, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where the inmates, the prisoners get to, to actually learn rodeo skills and then perform for outsiders. 
there is uh, its own radio I'm station. I'm going to correct you. They don't learn. Oh. There's no practice. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, sorry I got that wrong. What do you say? These guys are just like thrown onto the backs yeah, of bucking yeah, yeah, Broncos? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah. Uh, how many of them? Uh, yeah, yeah. I I have mixed feelings about the rodeo, and I've had discussions with the guys that are, you know, will have the same philosophical discussions about it. But they go, Marianne, it pays off. You know, it, it pays off in so many ways because they get to be relatively normal for those few days a year, huh? And the prisoner clubs make money on whatever concessions they run. And the individual prisoners make money on their crafts and their hobby, the hobby shop things, huh? But, but you're saying that inexperienced guys are going out and, in some cases, I guess, getting knocked around pretty bad, yeah? Yep. yep. I had a completely different impression, you know, outsiders coming in to um, witness and admire the skills of these guys, but... Is there something a little bit grotesque about going in and seeing inexperienced people getting uh, thrown around? You know what? No, other folks don't seem to think so. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the Southern Rodeo folks don't. Okay. They don't question it at all. All right. Because I have, you know, graduate students that do the rodeo circuit. They go to different rodeos, huh? And they don't. Quite, they never say anything about it. They know. They don't ever question it. Okay. The rodeo is wonderful. Well, it but is. I have seen half of one rodeo. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, other things that Angola has. It has its own radio station. I've heard it's the only FCC licensed station inside a prison in America. Yes, sir. What is it? K. Oh, I don't know the okay. call letters, and well, it will probably take me too long to look it up, but either one of us could probably, KLSP? Yeah, LSP. Yeah, see, I, I, I sort of remembered it, because it's very um, similar to the call letters of the station we're currently being heard on, KUSP. Right. Only one letter difference there. Uh, only one letter difference, and a lot of razor wire uh, right. distinguishes yeah. us. No, 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 no. <laughs> no raz- not a lot of razor wire. Around Angola? Yeah, it's only around the camps, you know, but three-quarters of the border of Angola is the Mississippi River. And then the other is the Tunica Hills. But there's so, there's got to be walls or something, right? No. No? No. You mean I, I could just walk off and swim the Mississippi and be a free person? Yeah, but you're not likely to swim the Mississippi successfully because... Um, yeah, it's going to be difficult to swim the Mississippi, and then you're not going to go in the in the Tunica Hills because the snakes are there. Oh, I see. So it yeah. is a little Alcatraz-like. There's some natural barriers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that now you will see concertina wire over by Death Row surrounding that building. You know what? I see it. This is really interesting. I see it in the videos of Angola. But I'm standing here, and I can't even tell you when I go down the walk in the main prison to go to the Angolite office if there's concertina wire on the side of that walk. The gates are there that I have to go through. You know, I have to go through a series of gates. But I don't see the concertina wire anymore. Huh. That's really weird. Huh. There... Well, I mean, it's not. I'm going to work. You but know, there, there... To do a 
task. I mean, we, we don't want to give the wrong impression that this is just a uh, summer camp. This is a place with armed guards and... Uh... No, no, guards are not armed. Uh, the guys on horseback, don't they carry shotguns it's or something? outside in the field. Yeah. yeah. But only in the field. No, no, but I mean, there's guys in towers. There are gun towers, yeah? Um, <laughs> some. We're, we're cutting down on the gun towers and using some robots and some dogs around the, the perimeter. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But uh, you can uh, you can be shot for trying to escape, I, I imagine. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. So it's still a prison. Yeah. Uh, right. But we were—I was listing some of the things that make Angola, you know, exceptional and make it sort of like its own large community. The uh, radio station. Uh, there's the museum you work in. Uh, I've heard it has its own coffin-making, you know, works where guys who die in prison, you know, will be buried in these coffins made in Angola. Absolutely, yeah, and that came about because the. Um Caskets that the uh, prisoners were buried in before were often the, the boxes that the caskets came in that the funeral parlors donated to Angola. And there was an incident where a prisoner fell out the bottom of it when they were burying him. Mm. I think Warden Kane changed that along with a prisoner organization. So they uh, started the casket making, and then they built um, a hearse, a horse-drawn hearse that looks like something from the 1900s to carry the casket into the cemetery when they bury a prisoner there. And it it really is a a quite beautiful ceremony now. Uh, One of the prisoners, and I don't know his real name, his name is, they call him Bones, and he drives the hearse, and he wears a top hat and tails. As soon as he puts on his tails and top hat, he doesn't speak anymore until he takes them off. It's a religious, spiritual experience for him. Right, right. So it's got its own cemetery, and it's got its own, I guess it's a magazine, right? News magazine, The Angolite? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and you've been involved with that. The Angolite's very famous. Um, it has won a number of really prestigious journalism awards, like a Polk Award, the kind of awards that publications outside are are vying for all the time. Right. It has this history of editorial independence of of the um the staff, the prisoner staff being able to go out and report on issues uh fairly freely in the prison. Is that true? Is that the case? You know, it is and it isn't. And and Wilbert Rita was the one who initially was the editor when they got a lot of those awards and if you read the book that he's written in Place of Justice, he will admit that You may not call it censorship, but you always have some restrictions on what you write. I mean, it's like newspapers outside. Sometimes your editor doesn't want you to publish that. Mm -hmm. But I think we can safely say that it has a degree of independence that's found in few other prison publications. I I would think so, yes. And that's kind of interesting. A famously restrictive prison, Mm -hmm. way back in, in, I guess... We're talking about like in the seventies, had this relatively you know liberal or permissive policy toward this publication, which published exposes of things going on inside the prison. Right, right. How how, how did that come about, and 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 uh, you know what's been the effect of that? 
Well, it came about when C. Paul Phelps took over as warden and then secretary of corrections. He said he wanted to know about it before somebody else dug it out and it hit the newspaper in the free world, that he wanted to know first. The impact of it is it's a prestigious job. It has the status of applying for the same kind of journalism awards that the New York Times does, only a different circulation category. And in fact, right now we're in the throes of uh, getting the material together to apply for a series of awards. The Hillman, there's a Kennedy, there's a Michael Kelly, the George Polk Award, and then there's the one that used to be the PASS Award, but it's called Media and Society. They changed the name this year because they won that one last year. No Pulitzers yet, though. No, 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 <laughs> not yet. <laughs> um, not, not that those writers are not capable. I'm, you know, of course, I see myself as a teacher and a researcher. I've never defined myself as a writer, but they're intimidating, huh? <laughs> um, you know, we, we've been talking in, in pretty, I think, cheerful tones about this place, Angola Penitentiary, uh, and all of its fascinating aspects. Um mm-hmm. Of course, it's a place where people are sent away for a long time and, and in many cases, for the rest of their life. Yes. Uh, yes. They enter and they either come out in a casket or they're buried on the grounds uh, yes. in some cases. So is it a sad place? Surprisingly not. Because, and that's, that's the thing that keeps me going back, that... Uh, Somehow, and and there are only a few that are getting out, we made a very small change in the law last year, but it will only apply to future. It won't be retrospective uh, on, on sentencing policy. But there are still people that get clemency hearings and get that life sentence change to a year calculation to where then they can be eligible for parole. They somehow know that they have a life sentence and that they might die there. But at the same time, they manage to maintain some hope that they can get out, that something will happen to where in the state. And, and we think that this economy could drive that because it's so bad, um, because the budget has been cut so bad and we just got another mid-year cut in our budget. And certainly you know that in California better than we do that somehow something will happen to allow prisoners to be released short of a life sentence. But the odds for most of them are not good. I guess not, but they, they don't own that. That intrigues me, too. How do you do time? How do you do your life like that? How do you maintain your pattern of living in your job every day? Huh? because I'm down there more and more now. How, how do you do that? I don't know. You know, we think we have problems on the outside, right? I hear some of them say very honestly, you know, uh, I did what I did and I don't deserve to get out, but I would like to. I, I don't know how they do it. I, I, that one, I cannot put myself in the place of the other and, and, and really comprehend it. So you think that, that hope, though, is something that is a consolation rather than 
let's say, a, a source of perpetual disappointment and frustration. Uh, I mean, what, a person could think, wouldn't it be better to just surrender and make the best of what's likely to be the rest of your life than to constantly cling to a real sliver of hope? Yeah, I, and yet the warden will say they have to do things to maintain hope for them. And he, in fact, has aligned himself with the ACLU. Now, that was the first piece of legislation just two years ago where we got some sort of compassionate release law passed, huh? which, you know, one, one wonders why not. Um, and it did only apply to a few people. But, but he and the ACLU were speaking before the Louisiana legislature arguing for it. I mean, talk about strange bedfellows, huh? So the programs and the free world people that come in and a trickle of some prisoners getting out that nobody may have imagined would have gotten out. So even though it's only a few of them, they maintain the pattern of facing where they are every day. But hold on to that little bit. You don't ever want to give that up, that little bit of hope is what they say. Hmm. If they didn't have hope, that place would be a mess. Hmm? What would they have to lose? Uh, yeah, good point. I mean, I, I was thinking that a kind of acceptance uh, can bring peace, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but maybe that would be a bad thing. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I did teach that one course in a woman's prison, and I would say, oh, I couldn't make it. I'd be in the corner. And they would say, you know, I would just shut up and grovel in the corner. And they'd say, oh, no, you wouldn't, Doc. You'd be, you'd be leading the group. <laughs> and I go, well, maybe, but initially, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's a question I have for you. So you spent a, a good part of your life mingling with people who are, you know, in captivity and who are finding what they can find uh, to to bring them happiness, to bring them consolation or serenity of some kind. So you get to see people working with a kind of extreme or exaggerated version of what we all have to confront in our lives. You know, how do we make the best of it? We're all going to die, uh-huh. <laughs> right? Life is not easy. It's full of hardship. Has it changed you to see people doing this? I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I'm not sure that, that that's what's changed me, but I think the reason I go down there is I came to the conclusion that I owe these guys that I owe the men and women who live and work in prisons because without them, I would not have had the career I have. Huh? Mm-hmm. I, I'm dependent upon them. And yet, every time I try and go give, I seem to come away with more. And people that work in the prison say that. It's not altruism because you get something from it. You get some satisfaction for maybe bringing a touch of normalcy that day to their lives. And and working with the Angolite guys, you know, they're my colleagues. You know, let's look at it. It's a place that where I go to work, everybody's happy to see me. Huh? Well, well Marianne, I just want to thank you. It's been a, a fascinating conversation, and I really appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for letting me talk about my passion. Marianne Fisher, G. Orlando. And this has been the 7th Avenue Project. Your host here, Robert Polly, saying so long until next week. And you can always visit us online at 7thAvenueProject.com. Have you ever heard a church bell tone?
Have you ever heard a church bell tone? Have you ever heard a church bell tone? Didn't you know that poor boy's dead and gone? While there's two white horses in a line. While there's two white horses in a line. Well, there's two white horses is in a line. Gonna take me to my hearing ground. Have you ever heard a church bell tone? Have you ever heard a church bell tone?